This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Tom Hartman, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Robert Reich, The Onion Radio News, The Progressive, Media Matters, On the Media, The Daily Show, Comedian Lee Camp, and The Colbert Report with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. Corporate CEOs have a secret they don't want you to know about. And that's how much money they're basically stealing from their workers. And the Republicans are their accomplices in this. I mean, they're, they're, they're right, a lot, right there next to them. Actually, the Republicans are the wholly owned division of the corporate CEOs. This has come out this week because last year, you know, the old Dodd-Frank bill, uh, well, it's not old, it's new, but it was the Wall Street Reform Bill. Here in D.C., I've been seeing these ads on TV that say, repeal Dodd-Frank. They don't say, you know, uh, there's some group, you know, Americans for Tax uh, Insanity or something, whatever it is, that is running these ads. And, uh, but they, you know, they don't tell you who they are. And they're probably Wall Street types who don't like the transparency, but they could be CEO types because the CEOs, there was this little piece. It's actually a small piece of the bill in the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Bill that says that companies have to disclose to the government, and then the government can publish it, it becomes a public document, the ratio of pay between the CEO and the janitor, basically, the, to the most highly paid person and the most lowly paid person in the company. It forces corporations to disclose how big is the pay gap. As in how much more money the big wigs in the corporate office make sitting on their butts all year versus how much money the factory floor workers make busting their butts all year. The theory behind this was that if people knew how big a pay gap was, it would shame the CEOs into taking less pay or maybe paying their janitors or their, their workers better. It used to work, you know, back in the 70s, average CEO pay was 30 times the average worker. Why? Because back in the 70s, the top tax rate after you made a couple million bucks uh, a year was 91%. So CEOs said, hey, <laughs> why should I even bother taking more money out of the company? It's just going to all go to Uncle Sam. I'll leave it in the business. We'll grow the business. We'll buy a new ad. You know, we'll use this money to hire an ad agency and do a new ad campaign and promote our products and grow our business. And that's why businesses were growing in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And then Ronald Reagan came along and dropped that top tax rate on CEOs from, at that point, 74% down to 28%. And guess what? All of a sudden, the CEOs are making 400 times, 500 times, 1,000 times, Wall Street, 2,000 times the average worker. Do you really think that any CEO is worth 2,000 times an average worker? Do they even think that they are? You know, if they thought that they were, they probably wouldn't object to this, this transparency requirement in Dodd-Frank that says that they've got to say, you know, how many, you know, what the ratio is in the pay. But 81 CEOs from 81 of the biggest corporations in America, including General Dynamics, Bank of America, McDonald's, IBM, they started this huge lobbying effort to repeal the CEO pay disclosure law. And so what did Republicans do? Republicans who control the House of Representatives? They passed a bill... It was last, last Thursday or Friday, as I recall. They passed a bill that said, yeah, CEOs don't have to reveal that. 
Now, it's not going to make it through the Senate. But bottom line, CEOs speak, Republicans jump. Speaking of media figures who have a distant relationship with the truth, on his June 23rd program, Fox's Bill O'Reilly gave viewers a lesson in, well, something. So why is this happening? Well, it all boils down to political philosophy. President Obama is a liberal guy who believes the Fed should run the economic show, and he hired advisors who believe that as well. The administration then set out to fight the recession by spending government money the so-called stimulus, that ran up trillions of dollars of debt. Historically, the way out of recessions is to give the private sector lower tax rates and reward people, businesses, for hiring other people. But the Obama administration has resisted that. Of course, this is the same Barack Obama who declared, quote, I am a pro-growth free market guy. I love the market, close quote. It's a pretty strange sentiment for a supposed economic nationalist. But seriously, who does O'Reilly think are Obama's left-wing economic advisors? Larry Summers? The stimulus package, a mix of spending and tax cuts, cost around $787 billion. The Congressional Budget Office estimates its 10-year cost will be slightly higher, around $820 billion, which is still miles away from trillions. And the deficit debt problems that O'Reilly is concerned with are due primarily to the George Bush tax cuts, the recession, and the Iraq-Afghan wars. Few would argue that the spending associated with economic recovery plays any major role. As for lower corporate tax rates, lots of business folks would love to pay less, sure. But if O'Reilly thinks history shows that lowering those tax rates is the way out of a recession, he must be getting his history from the same place he gets his economics. So everybody keeps saying we're broke, we don't have any money. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was watching uh, the 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. She does a great job and she dresses mm -hmm. smart. Mm -hmm. And She's one of the younger members of 60 Minutes, yes. so she's 75. Yes, so... <laughs> So like it's, and they're not in jeopardy of losing, because so, they're grandfathered into Medicare, so they don't care. <laughs> yeah. Everybody at 60 Minutes is grandfathered right. in. And um, so she sat down with David Stockman. Who was David Stockman, Jimmy? Okay. Well, he was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, the Gipper. He was Ronald Reagan's budget director. Ronald Reagan. This and is he David was, Stockman. And at the time, which I remember, he was very much considered the voice of the of the Reagan economics. Oh, the of, Reagan Revolution. Yes. He was the guy. He was yeah. he made it all happen. Because yeah, he was very young and he was Yeah, he you was know. mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
Uh, he's he's the guy doing it all different. Right, right. He's the guy who started trickle down economics, mm. and now we're gonna find out. I'm gonna play a clip from here, uh, from him in that interview with Leslie Stahl. Now he's really gonna be describing trickle up economics, and it's not really trickling. It's a rapid. It's a raging river. Uh, it's a tsunami, uh, trickling up to the wealthy. Let's go ahead and play. Uh, be ready for this clip, folks. I'm not kidding. Okay, here's David Stockman, Ronald Reagan's budget director, talking about the accumulation of wealth in America since 1980. In 1985, the top 5% of the households, the wealthiest 5%, had net worth of $8 trillion, which is a lot. Today, after serial bubble after serial bubble, the top 5% have net worth of $40 trillion. Oh, my God. And top 5% have gained more wealth than the whole human race had created prior to 1980. Well, couldn't he have come up with a more astounding statistic than that? <laughs> the entire history of the human race. I, you know, I just think we should sit in silence for a couple of seconds mm -hmm. and just let that sink in. Just let that sink in. They've accumulated more wealth since 1980 than the entire human race had created before it. I want to get some of this uh, cereal bubble cereal that they're selling. Yeah, I know. And you know what? You know what that tells me? We got to cut Medicare and Social Security. <laughs> it does, because nobody has any money except Who's got for money? We're broke, right? Let's go ahead and play uh, clip 15. Let's go ahead and play clip 15. We're broke. It's time for us to get serious about how we're spending the nation's money. So, uh, and Barack Obama agrees with them. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama, you just heard from, so Barack Obama is to the right of President Reagan's budget director. Mm -hmm. And we're broke, and yet didn't we just started fighting with Libya, right? Yes, we started we sending, got, um, yes. E, uh, each plane that goes in is, is worth more than, than uh, Medicare. And, and every $100 million, I don't know how much those bombs mm -hmm. cost, but mm -hmm. we're spending a lot of money. That's all, that's all I know. They they're expensive, even though they get them at Walmart. Some of them are expensive. hybrids, so they're yes. saving on gas. <laughs> so, yeah, so again, nobody says let's cut the wars. We always have endless... And where is the scrutiny from Christine Amanpour and George Will about how much this war in Libya is going to cost? Where's the money coming from? We got, we're broke! Where's John Boehner? We're broke! We're broke. Did you hear the clip I just played from David Stockman? The upper 5% of accumulated more wealth than the entire human race. Wow, that is that is what's known as a big final Jeopardy round. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help.
America used to invest a big portion of our economy in the future prosperity of all Americans. We built excellent public schools, offered almost free public higher education to everyone who qualified. We built the world's best system of interstate highways, as well as public transportation. We invested in public health with state-of-the-art water and sewer systems, and wonderful parks and public recreation, and basic research that got us to the moon. Not only did these improve the quality of life of Americans at the time, but they also made Americans more productive in future years. They built our joint prosperity. We're still living off these public investments, but in recent years, public investment has slowed as a portion of our economy, and now we have a deficit in public investment that imperils our future more than does our future budget deficit. In many states and cities, 30 or more kids are being crowded into classrooms. Preschool and after-school programs have been cut. Courses like music and art are gone. Even gym is gone. Public higher education is being starved. Fees and tuitions are so high, many families can no longer afford college. Meanwhile, water and sewer systems are now old and breaking. Many of our parks are neglected or closed. Our roads are clogged, traffic jams claiming more and more of our time. Bridges old and in need of repair. We're almost becoming a third world nation. And which nation is now doing the equivalent of getting to the moon? That is, developing the new non-carbon energy technologies of the future? Well, it's not us. It's China. Now, some say we can no longer afford to make these investments because we have to cut public budgets and give tax breaks to the rich. The truth is the reverse. We can't afford not to make these investments, and the rich have to pay their fair share. You see, money is global. It goes wherever around the world it can get the highest return. The only asset we have in America that's unique to America is our people. Our brains, our health, our public research, and our infrastructure. If we don't invest in these, we threaten our future prosperity and that of our kids and our grandkids. The kids don't stand a chance. It's the Onion Radio News. Banks introduce a 75-cent surcharge for using the word bank. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Executives from the nation's 50 largest banks announced today that effective immediately, all customers will be assessed a 75-cent surcharge each time they use the word bank. Kenneth Norland is president of the American Banking Association. Now, each time a customer uses the word bank, and either it's spoken or written form, 75 cents will automatically be deducted from his or her account. Uh, for instance, if you say, I bank with Bank of America, that would cost you $1.50. Norland added that customers who use the alternate phrase financial institution can avoid the surcharge as well as the 12-cent transaction fee. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News.
I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my Progressive Point of View, which you can also grab off our website over at Progressive.org. Recently, Orrin Hatch, who puts the moan in Sanctimonious, went on a rant about how 51% of Americans don't pay income taxes and suggested that all but the poorest of the poor should pay more. This is one of the oldest canards that Republicans throw at us whenever the subject of taxes comes up. But the truth of the matter is, all Americans who are working do pay taxes. They get hit with payroll taxes to fund Social Security and Medicare like everyone else, except more so. The bottom fifth of the population actually pays 8.8% of their income as payroll taxes. The top fifth only 5.7%. And sales taxes take a much bigger chunk out of the wallets of those 51% of the Americans whom Orrin Hatch has been sneering at. Hatch took to the Senate floor to champion the richest of the rich. As he put it, the top 1% of the so-called wealthy, and I love that so-called, pay 38% of all income tax. The top 10%, he said, are paying 70%. As they should. They're raking in the lion's share of the income anyway, and their income's been going up unlike everyone else's. So they should actually pay more, as they used to, in Eisenhower's day, when the top marginal rate was 92%, not 35%, as it is now. And let Orrin Hatch cry about it all he wants. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. In 2009, the Tax Policy Center projected that 47% of U.S. households would pay no income taxes to the federal government. Or as Fox News would say, uh, You know, there are a lot of people in this country, over half don't even pay any federal taxes, so he's really talking about you. You're going to have to sacrifice more. Well, you know, I don't mind sacrificing for the country, to be honest with you. But, you know, you do have a problem because half of the people don't pay any tax. And when he's talking about that, he's talking about people that aren't also working, that are not contributing to the society. And it's a problem. But we have 50 percent. It just hit the 50 percent mark. 50 percent of the people are paying no tax. Except the vast majority of Americans do pay taxes, including federal payroll taxes, excise taxes on gasoline, aviation, alcohol and cigarettes. Amid the talk of cutting government programs to fit under the debt ceiling, consider this surprising finding. In a nationwide survey, Cornell professor Susan Mettler found that many, perhaps a majority of people enrolled in government programs do not understand that they are receiving government benefits. They include 60% of homeowners who qualify for a home mortgage interest deduction, 44% of Social Security recipients, 39% of those on Medicare, and 53% of people with government-backed student loans. Danny Hayes is a professor of government at American University who studies Americans' changing political perceptions, and he has some thoughts on what appears to be the nation's cognitive dissonance. 
student loans is a really good example of what Suzanne Mettler and other scholars have referred to as the submerged state, right? The social welfare state that is largely hidden from public view. When people pay off their student loans, they are not writing a check directly to the government, and they're not getting communication in many cases directly from the government. They're getting from a third-party lender. This is one of the reasons that these benefits of government are often hidden from view, because in some ways, we don't actually interact directly with the government when we're engaging with them. So let's apportion some blame here for this resistance to the notion that much of the public is being supported by some kind of government program. First of all, politicians. Well, the Democrats are in a difficult position when it comes to government programs. On the one hand, uh, they benefit politically from calling the public's attention to the fact that they've supported programs like Medicare and Social Security and things that many Americans like. But on the other hand, in the abstract, Americans don't like the notion of, quote-unquote, big government. And so I think the Democratic Party doesn't want to put itself in the position of being cast as the tax-and-spend party, as Republicans often accuse them of being. But I also want to make clear that uh, many of these programs that are at issue here, things like the mortgage interest deduction and tax credits, are also supported by Republicans. But Republicans have a different motivation for not wanting to draw attention to them. It's not that they're afraid of being cast as the party of big government, but that they don't really see it that way. They see it as giving Americans back their money, right? That is money that they should never have to give to the government in the first place. And so when Republicans talk about these things, they don't frame it in terms of these are government benefits. They frame it in terms of these are protections that we are providing you from the government. And so in many ways, because the media serve as a conduit for these elite arguments, those arguments by politicians are what really kind of drive the way that Americans think about these programs. That's when they discuss the programs at all. But as you've observed, there are things that are baked into the business of journalism that seems to argue against discussing the details. Media outlets tend to prefer stories about process, stories that focus on which politicians winning, which politicians losing, but the implications of the policies that are being debated, the cuts to spending, what will that mean for Americans? don't get much attention. But it's also the case that policy stories don't get attention because they're harder to write at at all. Journalists have to know more. And I'm not suggesting that journalists are lazier, that they don't care about policy. But especially from the perspective of people who work for daily news outlets, it's very difficult to write substantive, thoughtful, careful, nuanced policy stories within an eight-hour window and then write another story the next day. Also, each time you have to explain what each of these policies is and what they do just like they have to explain what cap-and-trade is each time. And that's boring, right? Well, that's one of the things that works against the focus on policy, right? One of the things that's important here, too, is that some of these programs are supported by politicians in both the Democratic and Republican parties. And so when politicians don't fight over the substance of policies, the media often don't pay attention. Conflict is, the, is what drives the narrative. In moments where things like the GI Bill or Social Security are... Uh, debated publicly, and so they get a lot of attention in the media, Americans are more likely to attach the benefits they receive to that to government policies, right? Because they're being constantly reminded that these are things that the government is providing them. But for many of these policies, they're not voted on on a regular basis, and so are not subject to political debate, and thus the media don't give them a lot of coverage, thus citizens aren't reminded about the programs, and so they're just kind of baked into the way that we go about our daily lives, and we don't think of them as government expenditures on our behalf. It still astounds me that 27% of people who have subsidized housing or get welfare or get Medicaid claim that they have not used a government social program. 
it really is stunning, but it also has to do with the associations that are raised in citizens' minds when we think of people who receive government benefits, which stems in part from the debates in the 80s and 90s about welfare queens and people on the, on the dole and the arguments about welfare reform that were prominent during the Clinton administration. Because of that, they don't want to associate themselves with that image that they have of what a government beneficiary is, even though that's not really an accurate characterization. They just don't think of themselves that way. And so when they ask survey questions like this, they say, no, not me. Well, that's great. So we are able to blame the politicians and the media and also the news consumer. Does that suggest that any of this can change? There's lots of research in political science that shows that when people are provided factual information about the consequences of public policies, they will often change their views. Media coverage often reflects the the debate inside the beltway. But that doesn't have to be the case, right? There's nothing in the rule book of journalism that says you have to pay attention to what Democrats and Republicans are saying and not paying attention to anything else. News organizations could free up some reporters uh, to do more in-depth policy coverage. They could provide more information of the sort that we've talked about. And so there's nothing deterministic and there's nothing um, inevitable about the nature of coverage that we have today. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Wyatt Sinek. Uh, Wyatt, uh, John Boehner and the Republicans, they appear to be saying that uh, uh, the way to shrink the deficit is to cut spending, and the only way to raise revenue is to cut taxes. That seems crazy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Careful throwing around the word crazy when you're talking about matters of faith. I don't say you're crazy just because you believe bathing in the blood of Christian babies will bring about your Messiah. (laughs) But Wyatt, if lowering taxes rate... Wait, Jews don't believe that. That's not, that's not what yeah, we you believe. Do. You do. But you're missing my point. My point is, we're not talking about religion. We're talking about economic policy. You're missing the point. To Republicans, tax cuts are their religion. Republicans are job creationists. I mean, I suppose you liberal elites believe jobs just evolved from millions of years of stimulus spending. But that's not why sometimes, sometimes we have to raise taxes. Look, even Ronald Reagan. Peace be upon him. (laughs) He raised taxes in 1982 by nearly $100 billion in a recession. If you can never raise taxes, and Ronald Reagan... Peace be upon him! Really? I don't make the rules, John. Look, 
if even that guy <laughs> raised taxes, doesn't that at least challenge the current Republican belief system? Cynics like you are always looking for doctrinal con contradictions. Yeah, but the rich now have way more wealth and more income, even than in the 80s. The tax burden hasn't been this low since 1958. If Republicans think tax cuts always raise revenue, why not cut taxes to zero? John, let me tell you a parable. A holy man was in the desert, and the multitudes came to him and said, We have no food. And he said, Here are five loaves and two fishes. And so it was that the holy man and one of his friends sat down and ate a load of fish sandwiches. What, what about... What about the multitudes? What about them? Are you suggesting the socialist redistribution of fish and bread? Why punish the most successful fisherman? Look, I don't, I don't think I understand this parable's message. How do the multitudes eat? That's not the holy man's problem. Am I my brother's keeper? That's a biblical saying. Cain says that when he's trying to get away with murdering his brother. You call it murder. I call it the market regulating the brother supply. The poor folks hate the rich folks, and the rich folks hate the poor folks. All of my folks hate all of your folks. It's American as apple pie. But during National Brotherhood Week, National Brotherhood Week, New Yorkers love the Puerto Ricans cause it's very chic. Step up and shake the hand of someone you can't stand. You can tolerate him if you try. Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the Hindus hate the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews, but during National Brotherhood Week. The protest movement in Britain against the conservative government's austerity plans has inspired a U.S. movement that seeks to mobilize activists here to resist similar deep spending cuts. As we've talked about here on Counterspin, that activism doesn't get much media attention. But then again, neither do the much larger actions in the United Kingdom. On July 4th, the Washington Post had a report on a massive one-day walkout by public sector workers. As the Post put it, quote, the strikes are the first major uprising over the conservative-led government's ambitious plans to slash $128 billion in spending over the next four years, close quote. Now, I'm not sure how one would define a major uprising, but on March 26th of this year, hundreds of thousands hit the streets in London to protest the government's austerity plans in what was called the March for the Alternative. It was, by all accounts, a massive showing. Though the Washington Post didn't find them terribly newsworthy when the protests happened, running a brief item alongside other international news. So maybe the lesson is that newspapers don't merely ignore politically inconvenient activism in this country. They ignore it or downplay it when it happens elsewhere, too. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at majority.fm. 
It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Mike Barnacle, who, uh, he looks like a regular guy, but boy, he's not. Mm -hmm. Just because you don't get your teeth fixed doesn't mean that you're a regular person. <laughs> Right, he doesn't know what the regular people. His wife is a is a big executive for Bank mm -hmm. of America. But I'm interested in this clip to hear what he plagiarized this week. So here's Mike Barnacle asking. He asks a good question here. Let's go. Let's go ahead and play it. He asks. He actually does do a good job here. Let's hear it. When we hear about these acquisitions, Skype going for however many billions Microsoft is willing to pay for it, and all these other past acquisitions, why there continues to be no job growth, no real permanent job growth in this country. So that's a good question. Why mm -hmm. is there no job growth? So they had this hedge fund manager on the show that morning. Mm -hmm. And they asked this hedge fund, now, what do the hedge fund managers always, what are, everybody always say, oh, there's, there's certainty. Well, let's go ahead and play it. He'll say it, and then we'll talk about it. I think part of the problem is that there's not stable consistency and confidence. You know, every time we get a good leading economic indicator, we get some bad economic indicator. And, and so there hasn't been a stable environment by which corporations can feel, can feel comfortable to make permanent employment decisions. Yeah, see, they're, they're, then I've said, I got all this money, and uh, boy, I really could use a few more workers because uh, a lot of people want to buy my stuff, but I'm just nervous. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the theory. That's the theory. They got the, they have a, well, that's a, that's a BS theory. But they feel very secure just transferring huge amounts of money from one bank account to another bank account. Very, that's, very that's, safe. That's all Wall Street has done for years now is just transfer paper around. They don't, they don't, Their money, well, they FDR don't used create to jobs. They don't, they haven't fed the economy and, and, and added to the innovation and growth of our country. At, they they just send a pile of piece of paper from here over there and then it comes back and, and at the end of the day someone wins, someone loses. They're the largest sector of our economy and they produce nothing. Mm -hmm. They produce nothing. FDR referred to them as money changers, which is what they are. And, he and now they're, they're not even willing to change. They're not even willing to. So, so here's some, I don't know if you, uh, Mark Haynes, who was the CNBC uh, anchor who died recently unexpectedly. Oh, that's too bad. Well, he was the real deal, which is, of course, all the, we lose all the good guys, right? Mm. So he was on the show that morning. And he answered the same question. Let's hear what his answer is. I think it has nothing to do with confidence. Companies hire when they see more demand for their goods or services, period, the end. When business picks up, they hire. If business doesn't pick up, they don't hire. Well, you've got 7% growth in, 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 in the average earnings of the uh, S&P 500 over the last four years. Yeah, but you haven't had that kind of growth in the average earnings of the average worker. And that's who buys stuff. So until those people start buying more stuff, companies aren't going to hire. So there's a real effect. So he just told that guy, hey, by the way, you're full of, uh, you're full of crap, by the way, because that's not true. Exactly. When you have a demand for your product, you hire people so you can service that demand. 
That's what happens. What happens right now is they don't have a demand for their product because the people who are supposed to buy stuff, the workers, their wages have been stagnant for 30 years. And they don't have any money. And they have income insecurity. They have uh, employment insecurity right now. That is the problem. So instead of Barack Obama fixing that problem and uh, putting money, doing what FDR mm -hmm. did, demand-side economics, putting money in the pockets of workers so they can buy stuff, they keep doing it backwards. They keep giving money to the people who are already sitting on $2 trillion. Who have all this money and they're like, well, it's, it's, the, the situation is unstable. It's unstable. I, I, I only have $2 trillion. I, I have to keep Ooh, all my money. I'd, I'd like to hire someone at fifty grand a year, but mm -hmm. I, I only have $2 trillion. Right. So I just, it made me feel good to be able to come on here and share that clip with everybody. Uh, and did you see the dumbfounded look on that hedge fund manager? I don't even know what that guy's name was. I wish I did, but I've seen him know. in a couple of couple other shows. And you don't uh, know what his name is, and nobody knows exactly what he does. No, you're right. He's a hedge fund. Because he's a hedge fund manager. And um, so it was good to see. That's not. It's not has nothing to do with certainty or uncertainty or oh the it's not, it's not stable yet. And Barack's got to make sure and take the uncertainty out of everybody. It's not what it's about. And, the, and according to the Republicans, we'll take the uncertainty away if we don't give them any more, if they don't have to pay any more taxes. Yeah. That way they'll yeah. just feel more secure sitting on the money they have and, and not... Not spending it. Not spending it, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's the, the, the results are in, folks. Uh, Trickle-down economics doesn't work. Supply-side economics doesn't work. The results are in. Let me just say this about Wall Street. Uh, if, I, if I could screw my wife half as good as Wall Street has screwed our economy, I wouldn't have to go through her emails. I wish I could just make you turn around, turn around and see me cry. There's so much I need to say to you, so many reasons why. You're the only one who really knew me at all. So take a There's just an empty space And there's nothing left here to remind me Just the memory of your face oh, Take a look at me now It's the Onion Radio News. Minnesota is too polite to ask for federal funding. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Anonymous sources close to Minnesota say the traditionally undemanding state just doesn't feel comfortable asking the federal government for more interstate funding. Governor Tim Pawlenty responded mildly to the charges. Most of the potholes on I-90 are less than four feet wide. We get by just fine. There are a lot of folks around here who know the value of a little bit of elbow grease. Heck, Duluth said it has some scrap metal we could melt down to make some guardrails. The last time Minnesota accepted federal dollars in 1995, the state responded by sending cake and cookies to every member of Congress. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News Online. Hey there, Mr. Nice Guy, can you spare a penny or two? See, I lost my job and I got nothing to do. So I walk these streets and I'll bake through this town. And I hope to God it changes soon, cause I'm... I'm going down, I'm going down All we needed was some time to breathe 
my Republican friends have said that they're not uh, willing uh, to do revenues, uh, and they have repeated that uh, on several occasions. My hope, though, is that they're listening not just to lobbyists or uh, special interests here in Washington, but they're also listening to the American people. Because it turns out, poll after poll, many done by your organizations, show that it's not just Democrats who think we need to take a balanced approach, it's Republicans as well. The clear majority of Republican voters think that any deficit reduction package should have a uh, balanced approach and should include some revenues. That's not just Democrats. That's the majority of Republicans. You've got a whole slew of Republican officials from previous administrations. You've got a bipartisan commission that has said that we need revenues. So th this is not just a Democratic understanding. This is an understanding that I think the American people hold, that we should not be asking sacrifices from middle-class folks who are working hard every day, from the most vulnerable in our society. We should not be asking them to make sacrifices if we're not asking the most fortunate in our society to make some sacrifices as well. Pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, he just basically lays it out. And, and, and the, the, the part that is popping the eyeballs of the Republicans is every time he uses the word revenues. Because that's, you know, code, that's Washington speak for what Republicans call tax increases, even if it means plugging loopholes. In fact, Jacob, I want to go back to that JFK clip that we used yesterday, not right now, but within the next couple minutes. Um, but if you've got the, the second clip from Mr. Obama, from President Obama, if you could play that right now. Here's, here's another comment that he made this morning in his press conference. We're also saying to folks like myself that can afford it, that we are able and willing to do a little bit more. Uh, that millionaires and billionaires can afford to do a little bit more. That we can close corporate loopholes uh, so that oil companies aren't getting unnecessary tax breaks. Or that you know, corporate jet owners uh, aren't getting unnecessary tax breaks. Now, he... he you know, so he, this this is this is making the Republicans hysterical. And he he one of the comments he made earlier is he said you know one of the reasons these guys they painted themselves into a corner by previous statements that they've made, which is the you know the statements that they've made are variations on read my lips no new taxes or uh, you know don't worry uh, Mr. Koch you're you'll be able to depreciate your corporate jet over five years or your personal jet if he has one. I mean you know there's there's a number of billionaires in this country have personal jets you'll be able to depreciate it over five years instead of seven years we're going to keep that loophole in place not to worry that's that's what the republicans have said to their to their patrons to their owners and here you have a democratic president who is saying not so much no now frankly speaking for myself i would be i would be happier if instead of hearing him say we're going to cut domestic programs and he went into a long uh, uh, thing about how he was, uh, he 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 where where are the cuts going to fall? That he was willing to cut out of Medicare and Social Security out of out of domestic spending, but he was not as willing to cut out of military spending, which reflects, I think, uh, a you know t the extent to which he's saying the polls say eighty percent of Americans want to balance. So he's watching the polls. He should be watching the polls about how many Americans support our military misadventures and more money for the Pentagon, which has lost $2 trillion. But as I played yesterday, I want to do it again. This is, this is the, the second Nixon-Kennedy de debate. This is Jack Kennedy laying out how he was going to lower the top tax rate from 91 to 74 percent, 
but actually increase the amount of money that's coming into the Treasury by closing loopholes, the loopholes specifically that he wanted to close were the loophole that that the Wall Street fund managers and Paris Hilton are using right now, the sitting on your butt around the pool waiting for the dividend check to arrive loophole, also known as capital gains. Why should people who make their living with money pay a lower tax rate than people who make their living working with their hands? Right now, the top tax rate, if you make your money with money, is 15%. If you make your money working with your hands or your mind, the top tax rate is 36%. And Kennedy was saying, that's wrong. We're going we're gonna to change the, the capital gains tax, and we're going to change the way the businesses can take tax deductions. So he's actually, he, what Kennedy is saying is, we're going to raise revenues, which is what, what Obama's calling for. Here's Jack Kennedy. Third, I think it's possible to gain a $700 million to a $1 billion through tax changes, which I believe would close up loopholes on dividend withholding, on expense accounts. There you go. I mean, very, very simple. You know, we're going to go after we're going to go after the Paris Hiltons of the world, and we're going after the businesses of the world, and we're going to say you guys have to pay your fair share because you're you're benefiting from the prosperity of this country. Now, here's where Jack Kennedy and Barack Obama d defer, where they where they go off in different directions. Obama's saying, and we're going to cut domestic spending, and what Kennedy said was, you know, we're going to raise taxes. And keep in mind, the country had a deficit at that time, and he was proposing a balanced budget. He said, the country's gonna, we're gonna, but we're going to raise taxes in order to stimulate the economy, in order to increase spending, which, by the way, is what he did. Here he is. So in my judgment, we would spend more money in this administration on aid to education. We'd spend more money on housing. We'd spend more money, and I hope more wisely, on defense than this administration has done. But I believe that the next administration should work for a balanced budget, and that would be my intention. Mr. Nixon misstates my figures constantly, which uh, is, of course, is right. But the fact of the matter is, here is where I stand, and I just want to have it on the public record. So, you know, raise taxes, increase spending. That was, that was Kennedy's platform. He ran on it, and he won on it. And he did it. And it, and it made the country bigger and stronger and better, and, and we sent you know, men to the moon. And uh, amazing thing. So anyhow, the president is, is engaged in this game of chicken. In the meantime, over in the Senate, Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid are working out um, a deal, shall we say, that will allow the Republicans to say to their base, I didn't vote for raising the debt ceiling, because the debt ceiling, you know, it's a phony crisis to begin with. There was never any crisis about raising the debt ceiling when George Bush was president. It's a, the, the debt ceiling is a phony crisis. It's manufactured in D.C. The president said that today in his press conference. It's true. It's a phony crisis. So they can, but, but they've turned it into this big deal, and now they can't back away from that. They can't say, oh, we were just lying. So they've got to, they've got to say, uh, well, we voted against it, but the president vetoed our vote against it, and then we couldn't gather the two-thirds votes necessary to override his veto, and so the, you know, and, 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 and then they're talking about, let's put together a commission like the Base Closing Commission, where the, you know, the president, members of Congress, pick some people, and they sit in a room, and they decide how to slice and dice domestic spending, or raise taxes, or both, and then... Congress has no choice. They just have to vote yes or no, which is a great way to prevent members of Congress from having to do their jobs and having to do the hard work.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. I'm Lee Camp, and this is your Moment of Clarity. Today's episode is only for people earning over $1 million a year. So poor people, go eat Icy Pops or whatever it is poor people do. Rich people, I'm going to tell you how to stay rich forever. I know you're worried about your money right now because the commoners are angry, the stock market is jumpy, and immigrants keep coming back no matter how many times you spray for them. And your response has been to grab everything you can from the middle and lower class. You cut health care, cut pensions and social security, cut everything designed for the common good. But you can only cut so much before there won't be a middle class left to buy all the shit that made you rich. You are not only butchering the goose that lays the golden eggs, you're humping it in the face and then setting its carcass on fire. But if you instead let that golden goose live, then you could keep milking us for generations to come. I don't know why you're milking a goose, but you get the point. Just give us our stupid shit, our iPads, our video games, our swimming pool noodles. Give us health care, a good minimum wage, stable bridges and strong flood levies. Give us that stuff and I promise you the masses of geese will shut up and stay blind and in line. We'll go shopping every day and buy big ass cars and go on vacations to places devoid of meaning but packed full of nonsense and non-events. We'll dump a month's pay into your slot machines and your manufactured dreams. Just stop demolishing our society and we'll faithfully hand you golden eggs every day. But as it stands, you're milking the out of our eggs to the point that our udders are chafed, tired, and tapped out. And soon we sheep, cow, geese things are gonna rise up because you had the nerve to repossess our pool noodles. Anyway, I'm Lee Camp. Get the new Moment of Clarity podcast at LeeCamp.net.
I'm amazed and horrified at the recklessness and ruthlessness of the ruling class here in the U.S. and across Europe. Those who govern these so-called democracies and those in whose interest the politicians are serving seem hell-bent today on destroying any semblance of a social contract and devouring any scrap of fairness. It started decades ago, first retail with the recession that Paul Volcker engineered under Carter and then wholesale under Ronald Reagan right up to the present. Economic policy is designed here to serve the interests of the banks, the bondholders, the dividend depositors, and the hedge fund managers. It's not designed to help the majority of the people. Nowhere was this clearer than in the bailout of Wall Street, which rescued the bankers but did nothing for the mortgage holders or the unemployed. And today it's clear again in state after state as teachers and other public sector workers take the hit. And it's clear also from Greece to England, where austerity is the order of the day, though it's the vast majority who will see their standard of living fall off a cliff, even as the banks are rescued yet again. America's crude capitalism is conquering Europe now, rather than social democracy making any inroads here. This is what the fighting's all about. What kind of society will we have? I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Jesus said the poor would always be with us. Well, it turns out Jesus does not know everything. For more, Fox News' Stu Varney makes words come out of his mouth. When you think of poverty, you picture this. But what if I told you it really looks like this? A new report showing poor families in the United States are not what they used to be. I'm just going to give our viewers a quick run-through of what items poor families in America have. 99% of them have a refrigerator. 81% have a microwave. A refrigerator and a microwave? They can preserve and heat food? Ooh la la! I guess the poor are too good for mold and trichinosis. It's all here, folks, in the conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation's new report, air conditioning, cable TV, and an Xbox. What is poverty in the United States today? And if you watched closely in Stu Varney's report just then, you saw that evidently poverty is the plasma flat screen aisle at Best Buy. <laughs> And you will not believe some of the stuff poor people have in their homes. Luxuries like ceiling fans, DVD players, answering machines, and coffee makers. I don't have those things. I have central air, a Blu-ray player, voicemail, and I go to Starbucks every day. Must be nice. Must be pretty nice. And, and $10 coffee makers aren't the only luxury these poors can afford. <laughs> Stu? I seem to remember in the last few years being told that something like 12% of the children in America go to bed hungry at night. You're saying that that's flat out not, not accurate. A a that's an absolute lie. It may be 2% of children at some point in the year would go to bed hungry. 2% hungry. That's the perfect amount. <laughs> 
There's about, about 150 of us in this room. If three of us were hungry children, I think we'd feel pretty good about that. I mean, this report proves that poor people are just not living down to our expectations. If you still have the strength to brush the flies off your eyeballs, you're not really poor. Because even the ones that are officially poor are probably way richer than you think. Because in determining whether a household was poor, the census only counts about 4% of the welfare spent on that family as income. So we don't need to give the poor assistance because they're not poor thanks to the assistance we give them. I mean, folks, these great society anti-poverty programs were like a dam that we built to hold back the river of poverty. And it worked. So let's tear down the dam. I'm sure the river will stay put. But if not, and the poor start drowning again, we'll throw them a life preserver or a refrigerator. Poor people seem to love those things. In the middle of the night, I go walking in my sleep. From the mountains of fame, to the river so deep. I must be looking for something, something sacred I love. Martha McCollum is uh, a longtime Fox News anchor and reporter. Uh, I remember her because she's the one that did exactly what uh, the memos told her to do. There were some leaked memos from the vice president of news at Fox News, uh, a guy named Moody. And he said, uh, for example, after the 2006 elections, uh, we need you to say that the Iraqi insurgents are happy about democratic victories. Now, that's absurd. There was no evidence of that. And that's as much propaganda as you can get. The one reporter that went on air and said, Iraqi insurgents look like they're, you know, celebrating democratic victories, I'm paraphrasing here, was, of course, Martha McCullough. And now, get a load of her on the Social Security and the checks that the government sends out in the wars. Let's watch. I want to ask you one more question, because when I watched the president last night, he talked about the things that have driven us to this situation. And he said right. two wars that we couldn't pay for, uh, a prescription drug plan oh. that, you know, w yeah, was way was... too expensive to pay for, and the financial crisis that followed. And that was, you know, toward the beginning of his watch and, and overlapping right. the Bush administration. But I, I couldn't help thinking, well, if we weren't in such a precarious situation and hadn't right. overextended ourselves to such an incredible extent where we are sending out 80 million checks a month, uh, the U.S. government, wouldn't we have been able to handle those things, like the two wars, in a much better, stronger fiscal position? And isn't that where we really want to be as a country? Oh, I love that, man. So, you know, uh, most of those checks she's talking about are Social Security, Medicare checks, etc. So she's saying, if we just didn't give people Social Security, which they've paid into their whole lives, gee, we could start more wars. Then we wouldn't have had any problems uh, funding those wars. Hell, we can go into Nicaragua. I mean, there's so many other countries we haven't invaded yet. If we just stop giving people Social Security, Medicare, and all those things that they paid into their whole lives, look at all the wonderful wars we can start.
Hi, Jay. This is Michael from Glen Burnie. Um, <clears throat> not calling about any particular episode. I just wanted to uh, uh, mention a, a show I've recently found. Um, I imagine you're probably aware of it, but just on the off chance that you're not, uh, it's a debate series called Intelligence Squared that airs on NPR, but they also have unedited versions. Uh, they're about an hour and a half long. They show on uh, they they have available for download on their website, and uh, it's just absolutely some of the most interesting discussion I've ever heard uh, about politics and and all sorts of things. Really, uh, like for instance, the episode I just downloaded was about is it wrong to pay for sex? Uh, and uh, I don't know if if every episode will will or every debate will work for, could work for your show, or if you'd even be able to take the debate format and work it into your show, but. Even if not, I just want to let all the listeners know that it's it's a great a great show to go to to listen to, uh, and, and one of the things I like about it is that it doesn't devolve into partisan politics too much. You're, if it does, you get you get different views uh, that you don't hear from the talking heads all the time. So I just wanted to let you know and let the listeners know, and uh, thanks again for everything that you do. Take care. Hi, Jay. Chuck in Salt Lake City. I wanted to call uh, for two quick points. I'll try to make them quick. One is uh, thanks so much for the show pointing out our need to uh, maybe press Obama to step aside <laughs> or to run a, run a challenger. Uh, you also had a caller on the same show who was um, making the point that uh, she didn't think that the talking point uh, approach was going to work for us and that it may even not be counter to the progressive philosophy of free speech and uh, self-governance. I, I, you know, I think, I, I understand what she's saying, but I think she kind of took it to its, ex, to its logical extreme. And I think that we're not, we're not there yet. Uh, you know, I think that if, if we were in a position where liberals were already in control of the country and we were using points to uh, winnow out uh, people who weren't progressive you know that would be the illogical extreme that she's talking about and you know I live in in Utah and I can tell you that one of the biggest reasons that people here are so conservative is just simple ignorance and that doesn't mean that I don't believe that they have the right self-governance or that they shouldn't shouldn't vote although uh, Dan Carlin recently made a pretty good, pretty good argument that maybe they shouldn't. But I think if we're going to reach people like that, uh, which is what we have to do, we're going to have to kind of fight fire with fire to an extent because, man, these talking points, they work. They work great. And um, I'll be happy to participate <laughs> in that and, uh, and still believe that uninformed people have the right to self-governance and i don't feel like we're taking that away until we get to that point where we're taking it to the extreme anyway again jay for all your great work thanks for listening everyone and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line if you would like to leave a comment question or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show the number to dial is 206-202-3410 so today i have two half stories and neither of them really have a point but um here they go anyways <laughs> it should be fun uh the first is that i went on a train ride and the second is where i went on that train ride so uh, i live in chicago 
One of the many, many, many reasons why I love living in Chicago is that this city is the train hub of the country. If you want to get anywhere by train, this is the place you want to start from because you can get pretty much anywhere from here. So if you like taking the train like I do, that's a good place to be. So what I want to say about this is that ever since I sold my car, I've had this feeling. So you know, I, I grew up living in the suburbs where a car is just simply a way of life. I mean, it, it is, there's no question about how to get around is you have a car or you don't get around. There's no really uh, viable alternative. So then when I moved to a real city several years ago and there was public transportation and I learned how to use it, I realized, well, I don't need this car anymore. It's, it's more of a burden than, than, a you know, than a help. So, so I got rid of it. And I, I did this thing where I kind of like reverted several years to, you know, what it felt like as a kid, because I was riding my bike a lot. And then, you know, bike plus public transportation uh, was, was how I got around everywhere. And I had this, this renewed sense of appreciation for like distance and mobility. And I think that's something that cars kind of rob from us. And, it, you know, it just robs this sort of uh, the sense of appreciation we have. So now I get around uh, in, in my regular days, either by the local train, the L here in uh, here in Chicago or by bike. And um, and then if I'm in a pinch, I will go by bus. And then for longer trips, whenever it's possible uh, to not fly, I like to take the train. And so all of these modes of transportation, I think, have, uh, you know, helped me maintain this sense of appreciation for how much work it takes, uh, you know, to get from one place to another. You know, if you're driving, you're in your little personal human cocoon with uh, your own music and your own temperature and all those sorts of things. And, you know, if you're in an airplane, you're in this totally enclosed tube, you're not in control, you don't know what's going on, you, you get in, you sit down, you don't really see anything happen, and then poof, you're somewhere else. So whatever the concrete benefit of that, I'm not even sure what the concrete benefit is, but whatever it is, I know I like it. And that's just what I have to say about that. It, it, I, I encourage you to check it out yourself. <laughs> if you have the chance to stop using a car and kind of force yourself to take a less convenient mode of transportation, uh, you may find out that you like it in ways uh, that you wouldn't have recognized otherwise. So that's one half story without a real point. <laughs> uh, the second half story without a real point is uh, the destination of my train trip was uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. Went down there for a, uh, a retreat. And the retreat was held by the New Leaders Council. This is a group that I have not only mentioned, but helped uh, fundraise for on this show before. And, uh, and it, it, is, it is a group that I think... I think people will be hearing more about them as the years go on. They have, uh, you know, they're a relatively young organization and they are, you know, building uh, at first was slowly but surely and now pretty rapidly, frankly. Um, and, and basically the point of their existence is to train the next generation of progressive leaders. So there are chapters of the New Leaders Council or NLC in cities all across the country. And as, as they say it kind of internally, uh, their their point is to build the farm team, the you know if you're into baseball, 
the the progressive farm team as uh, you know they're they're developing and training and you know putting these uh, putting skills in the hands of people who are already engaged in politics want to become more engaged and want to go on and you know continue on that path and as they uh, you know go from their you know mid twenties and and move on and uh, and rise up in the uh, you know whatever particular ranks they happen to be going through. They will have these skills handy that uh, NLC has provided for them. And so it's a great program that is actually free for those who apply and are accepted. And, um, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's a great organization. I was happy to be a part of the program. You know, I went through the, uh, the program and, and training, and now I'm kind of continuing my participation with the group by uh, attending the retreat in New Orleans. And, um, you know, we'll be a part of my local chapter here in an ongoing way. So it's very exciting stuff. Uh, applications, if you're interested in being a part of the program, applications are open to anyone. Anyone can apply. And they uh, will be opening in about a month. And then, so then there is a, a, an application window each year that's a couple of months long. And so when that window opens, I will definitely be telling you guys again, and you can uh, see if you live near a chapter and want to apply and get involved and all sorts of fun things like that. So there you go. That was kind of half a story, um, just mostly an excuse to mention NLC again and let you guys know what I was doing. Uh, frankly, not a real uh, huge point to the story, but uh, between those two, I think you got something out of that. Maybe. Um, so I just want to thank a couple of members, as I always do. Elizabeth B. signed up for a uh, leftist monthly membership back on March 1st and has stuck with the show since then. And Jonathan C. signed up uh, as a, a very generous communist member and signed up for a full year in advance back on July 19th, uh, just back on July 19th. That was only a few weeks ago. So huge thanks to Elizabeth and Jonathan and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can donate your Twitter and Facebook accounts. Details about that, of course, are on the website, so check that out if you're interested. Please continue sharing all the individual clips that you like. Uh, once you hear them, simply go to the website and uh, share on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or Google Plus or whatever you want to do. All of those things are available, so check that out and get involved. To stay tuned into the show between episodes, you can join up with us directly on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes of the blog. Now coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Thought black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right, bitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you want to meet, a dying man. Oh, take you out.